0: Larry David called me and he said, hey, you know, I just did this pilot, Seinfeld, and, you know, I'd like you to work on it. I was like, great. You know, he said, come on, we'll do 13 episodes. You'll make some money. The show will probably get canceled, but we'll make a little money. It'll be good.
1: Varvet International with me, Christopher Triumph, talking to you from a cloudy November morning in Hollywood, California. And speaking of clouds and the stuff that comes out of them sometimes, Varvet is brought to you in cooperation with Stutterheim Raincoats. And Stutterheim is a Stockholm-based company with basically the best raincoats in the world, or at least the best I've seen. So far, I haven't been in contact with all the raincoats yet, but I'm working on it. So, browse away to www.stutterheim.com and find your style in rainwear or accessories. And it's all handmade, it's all really beautiful, and all shipping is free. So, thank you very much, Stutterheim, for sponsoring the show. This week's guest is a legend. Writer, director, producer, showrunner Larry Charles has been a part of some of the most iconic shows and movies of modern times. For example, he wrote on Seinfeld, he directed Curb Your Enthusiasm, he executive produced the first seasons of Entourage, Uh, he was the showrunner on Mad About You, and he directed the uh, classic Sacha Baron Cohen movies Borat, Bruno and The Dictator. On top of this, he's also done an eccentric movie with Bob Dylan. It's called Masked and Anonymous. And he did a sort of documentary or non-fictitious comedy called Religious with Bill Maher in 2008. Right now, he's in production of a new TV series for FX with Billy Crystal and Josh Gad. We'll get to that soon in this quite long talk recorded in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Roll the tape,
0: please. I woke up and realized I was alive. That's, again, a good start. Yeah? Um, just, I, I had a cup of coffee and um, smoked a couple of cigarettes and got dressed and, and drove. But my driving experience, as I was telling you before, was nice. Uh, when you could drive in L.A. without traffic, you know, and you're in a comfortable car and you're driving along the ocean or whatever it is, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasurable, contemplative, reflective experience, which, which I try to take advantage of as much as possible.
1: What I usually do is that I take it a little bit from the beginning.
0: Sure. So uh, you were born in 1956. I was born December 1st, 1956. Same day as Woody Allen. Same birthday as Woody Allen. So it was a very fortuitous birthday. Two great Jewish creators. (laughs) From the same neighborhood. That neighborhood, for some reason, that I grew up in, was, uh, for a couple of generations, was a hotbed of what became American comedy, really. Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Larry David, Joseph Heller... You know, uh, Neil Simon, a, a lot of these guys, maybe not Neil Simon, I could be wrong about that one, actually. But those other guys, all from that same small neighborhood in Brooklyn. How come? Um, good question. I don't know. It's, it was a ghetto, uh, a Jewish ghetto, like a shtetl almost. When I grew up there, it was like sort of the end of that era of the people from World War I leaving Poland and Russia and Austria and places like that to come to the States. So there was a there was a tremendous amount of suffering, a tremendous amount of pain. It was a very loud neighborhood. Uh, it was a very crowded, congested neighborhood. So maybe the, this kind of uh, this, these environmental factors pushed people to be verbal, to be aggressive on some level, to be assertive, and and uh, uh, and if you wanted something, you couldn't just take it. you had to fight somebody for it. and And so you figure out strategies and tactics to survive that kind of environment there's a a, a hierarchy like I've often described it like Lord of the Flies growing up in that part of Brooklyn and I think uh uh, you some people develop their physical skills and some people develop their verbal skills in order to survive and I think the humor a lot of it derives out of the fear and the anger and then developing verbal skills to to sort of uh, uh express them you know so what what, uh, neighborhood is it it's uh it's brighton beach coney island okay right at the end of brooklyn right right. right on the ocean actually but when i grew up the ocean in brooklyn was disgusting it was uh needles and you know weird garbage and you weren't supposed to even go in the water so living by the ocean was not like a status thing at all it was actually kind of like a negative you know it wasn't until later when i grew up i realized oh my god i grew up by the ocean (laughs) what what did your parents do for living my 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 both my parents were frustrated show business people. My father um came out of World War II on, and took the GI bill to go to dramatic school, to go to acting school. He went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, Jason Robards who won an Oscar and all the presidents men was his teacher. And he did stand-up comedy. His stage name for a while was Psycho, the Exotic Neurotic. You know, so he had like an act and he auditioned for things, but He didn't really stay with it, although sensibility-wise, he stayed with it in his mind, always. He was obsessed with it. And my mother also was like a frustrated singer and entertainer. And even to this day, my mother lives in a condo in Florida, and she's the star of the condo shows. But your father? My father father fell out of show business uh, on an official basis uh, and then kind of drifted from job to job to job, did many, many different things, went bankrupt at one point. Um, and then, eventually, in his later years, ran uh, like uh, opened the medical supply business, and okay. basically did that until he retired like a year or so ago, and he's like eighty six. And they're still together. No, my parents divorced when I was about fourteen or something like that. Okay. Soon after my bar mitzvah, uh-huh. uh, and uh, and then my mother and my brother and I moved to Florida. Uh, uh, my grandfather kind of forced my mother to move to Florida after that, and so I finished high school in Florida. How was that? Well, the thing was that uh, having grown up in such a rough neighborhood in Brooklyn and going to junior high school where every day was like a siege mentality at school, there were riots, there were fights, Uh, going back and hanging out at the park near my house, there was always gang fights, and there was a lot of violence, and I was starting to get really tired of it, and I was starting to discover... My cultural identity, my sensibility, you know, I kind of stumbled upon Catch 22 in like fifth or sixth grade at a used bookstore, which of course don't, you know, they don't exist anymore. That whole culture of used bookstores, used record stores. So I started to discover music and, and literature and movies on a much deeper level than just kind of casual. And, um, I knew I wanted to get out of Brooklyn at that time. Now, Brooklyn's changed a lot since then, but at that time, it was very ghettoized. It was very racist and homophobic and... It was, it was a very provincial community. Considering it was in New York, it was right next to Manhattan, it was surprisingly, a surprisingly ignorant neighborhood in a lot of ways, I, I felt. Mm. And uh, so I, I went to a different high school in Brooklyn. when my time, When I had the opportunity, I went to a different high school. And that high school was a really cool high school. It was an experimental high school. There were no marks. And I got to meet more like-minded people, and I really was enjoying that. I was doing, uh, cartoons for the school newspaper, and I was making little films, and I was writing stuff, and I was going into the city and seeing foreign movies for the first time. The Conformist, or Weekend, or, you know, all these amazing movies that I got exposed to at that time. And then my mother and my grandfather made the decision to move to Florida, so I was very disappointed. Moved to Florida, lived like near a swamp in Florida. Suddenly, I'm going from the most urban environment there is to like a swamp in Florida. And so I was very, very alienated again for quite a while. And then at that high school, which is also an experimental high school just by coincidence, it was my local high school, I hap- they happened to have a really strong theater department. And, they, and I, because I came from New York, had had most of my requirements. I didn't need my math or my science. So I was able to just take... Art, you know, literature, you know, uh, uh, theater classes and stuff like that, and got to meet a very cool bunch of people who were into theater and stuff like that. It was in in Brooklyn. You couldn't be into theater because you would be uh, tagged as uh, gay, uh, and and the words, of course, were much harsher then. Uh, Gay wasn't a, a word at that point. You know, there was a lot of other words that were much more negative and disparaging, and so you would have to kind of almost. Uh, And and I did this. I had to almost suppress my artistic desires when I was in Brooklyn and be very private about it. Because to share share anything that could be perceived as a weakness would be taken advantage of and exploited, you know. And one of the ways I balanced that, by the way, was being good at sports. Because if you were good at sports, then you could compete with the guys on that level. You know, and then my drawing or my writing or those artistic aspirations couldn 't be disparaged as easily, so I moved to florida what 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 kind of sports did you do? well baseball in in Brooklyn, from the moment you got out of school to the moment you had to go home, you played something depending on the season. so we had baseball, we had little league, we had football, we had basketball, but we also had punch ball and slap ball. And uh, ring Alivio, which was a, a game where one side was trying to capture the other side, which would get these would get be, be, all these all these games would become violent at some point. Okay, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? With clothes getting ripped and fights breaking out and stuff like that. Okay. So, but you would play all day long on Saturday. First thing in the morning, you get up, you go downstairs, you get into a basketball game, you get into a, a slap ball game, a punch ball game. Uh, you, if you couldn't do anything else, you would run. We would just race each other, you know what I mean? So so when I was a kid, I was very, very active that way. Mm. And, and and that was kind of common for that neighborhood. You know? But you couldn't lay that off
1: when you moved to Florida?
0: Or, well, by the time I got to Florida, right now, I'm in high school, my focus is... First of all, I don't have to do that. I, the cool kids that I like are actually in theater, which I would never have associated with theater kids back in Brooklyn, you know. But the cool guys, the, guy, the guys giving the girls also and the most pretty girls were in the theater department so that was a good place to hang out i started hanging out there and i was given all this freedom to write a play to direct a play to be in a play uh and to start thinking that way and meeting other like-minded people
1: did you keep that interest
0: uh, for the rest of your upbringing well, I, w- one of the guys that I met was a guy named Adam Leslie, who, who, at 16 in high school, was already a professional comedian in Florida. His father had been a comedian, he still was a comedian, in fact,
1: Sta- stand-up comedian. stand-up right? comedian. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so I started hanging out with him. I saw him on stage at a high school talent show, and I was like, "This guy is a star, you know, and he's like doing things that I can only dream about. You know, back in my mind, I would think about stand-up or comedy or show business. But really, it was very far removed from my reality, you know. But here's a guy who was doing it. And I could hang out with him. And I would go to the clubs with him. And we would hang out and be funny together and develop our sensibilities. And he turned me on to Lenny Bruce and all these really cool things. And I was lucky along the way, all through my life, to have mentors, inadvertent mentors, who turned me on to stuff that ultimately had a gigantic impact on my sensibility. So he turned me on to a lot of cool stand-up, and Lenny Bruce, like I said, and, and he himself was a brilliant, brilliant stand-up. It wasn't until years later that I realized that his great material was stolen from elsewhere. And he himself was a comedian, but also a criminal, and, uh, and ultimately a, uh, a crackhead as well, and uh-huh. died a couple of years ago. But we were close, close friends for our entire lives, really, so...
1: I guess back back then, before YouTube, you could steal material in in another way.
0: You could steal material. It's true. You see somebody on TV, and you could steal the material and do it locally, and nobody would even know. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, And he was he was a a, a, kind of a a, even though we were very close, like brothers, he was a sociopath. You know, he didn't have the conscience to go. You know what? Stealing's wrong. You know, he didn't feel the way. He was like a desperate character. Mm -hmm. You know, like a very Charles Bukowski kind of ultimately very street hustler kind of person, you know, but taught me how to live on the streets, taught me how to survive, taught me how to shoplift, taught me how, taught me how to live basically. So, but you, so, so you were actually like uh, living on the streets. I lived on the streets a lot, and uh, but from the time I gr- graduated high school to the time I moved to California, which is probably uh, a five or six year period, uh, there were many times I had no place to live. Um, and, uh, we would crash with people. Uh, I, I would sleep on a, on a bench occasionally, you know, not too often, you know, but there were times I get, it would get to be late at night. I have no money, no place to go and have to kind of improvise, you know. So, uh, but fortunately, most of the time we were like crashing somewhere. It was like crash pads in people's houses. And, you know, eventually he and I, for instance, got a hotel, a motel room we lived in fifty nine dollars a week or something it was like a cell it was it was like just two beds and a window you know so we we were always kind of scrambling and late on the rent having to leave getting evicted those kind of things so it was it was a very hand-to-mouth existence for those years in the late 70s for me until i came to california even then but at least then things started to sort of shift
1: do you remember your first gig
0: yes the uh, i i did quite a bit of performing um in the uh, at high school because of Adam I decided to give it a try myself and I hosted some of these coffee house talent show things loved it had a really good time especially when I was on stage with him we would go on stage together and we would just riff and we just had like a natural kind of rhythm it was great and then we worked together and and apart but but also mainly worked together uh as comedians as a comedy team we traveled for quite a few months with a band uh, where we opened for the band at lounges, at Ramada Inns in Louisiana and stuff, and wore these foam green tuxedos, and, you know, we played in New Orleans one night, I remember, and uh, and this was a very dysfunctional band, this was like, the band leader was like a Charlie Manson type, and he had everyone under his spell, except for me and Adam, you know, and um, we played this place in New Orleans called Dillinger's, in an area called Fat City, and um, Walked into the club. There was no. It was like a Monday night or something, and nobody was in the club. And we opened the show, and so Adam and I got up on stage. And instead of doing our act, there was nobody in the club. There was one guy at the bar. We just kind of messed around for a while. You know, we just sort of made stuff up and kidded around and whatever. And then we went off stage, and the band leader came up to us and goes, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, what? There was nobody there. Well, you're fired." It's like, well, why are we fired? You know, it's like there was only one guy at the bar. Yeah, that guy was the owner. You know, Mm -hmm. so we so we got kicked out of the club. We had no place to go. We wandered around New Orleans for a couple of days. You know, these we were constantly in drama. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually we got back with the band. We went up to Peoria, Illinois. He never paid anybody. He never fed anybody. He used all kinds of classic brainwashing techniques, actually, which I was aware of. And I would tell the other band members, and they were like, they were like, so. Uh, stoned and and malnourished, that they couldn't hear it really. But we played this place in Peoria called the uh, Coliseum, and he fired us once again before the show. But all our props were left on stage, so the so the show was going on, and we went to get our props, and we saw that our props were on stage. The place was packed, and Adam and I boldly, brazenly walked onto the stage and started taking our props back, and he, this guy Ed, the band leader, who was playing guitar, and he sidled over to us and said, don't touch that stuff. You know. And We said, we're taking our stuff, and suddenly we got into a fight. We started pushing, shoving, and suddenly now we're all three of us are rolling around on the floor. We're fighting. The crowd loved it. They started throwing tables and chairs, started a riot. We got pulled out by the police, and we were thrown out of Peoria, Illinois. So that was July 4th, 1976. I remember that because we had to get on a bu- I had to get money from my mother for bus fare because that's how broke we were. Yeah. She had to wire me money, and he and I got on the bus, and we took the bus back to New York from Peoria, Illinois, uh, on, uh, on the Bicentennial.
1: I read somewhere that you were writing like uh,
0: porn for a while. I wrote porn. This was just before I went on the road with him. I got a job. I wanted to be a writer. You know, I didn't know how to do it essentially. You know, how do you start? And, uh, and I'd write things and, or, and I'd draw cartoons and I'd send them in and I'd get rejections and whatever. So I saw an ad in the Village Voice for adult fiction writers. And I went to that interview and it was like an office, a very, very nondescript office. And they made, at this time, and again, this is, shows you the generational uh, change. There used to be a big trade. First, of all, there used to be gigantic porno arcades in New York at that time, you know, and there was like tons of porno, and but there was no internet, there was no, you know, it was all mail, and if you wanted to get it, you had to get it mailed in like a brown paper bag or whatever. But there were porno novels were part of the porno world, like there were porno novels, you know, they would be like 150 pages filled with like just lewd sex, you know. That's what these people did at this office. They wrote porno novels. And and the job was you wrote a porno novel a week and you got paid by the page so you could make up to like $150 for the book. But you had to proofread it yourself. This is before computers. This is like a typewriter with a cold, like as thick as the stem of this, uh, like a, a tube that went to a cold press. And so you would type here and your pages would come out there ready to be put into a book form, you know, but I was a terrible typist and I would get my copy back and and there would be a million mistakes and the way you had to fix the mistakes was you were given a razor blade and you had to cut out the words from that page. So if I had the wrong, I had to cut out the or a instead of as or whatever. I had to cut those out myself and I had so many mistakes that my page was just like, filled with holes. You know, it was like braille, it looked like. And, um, and my fingers would be bleeding at the end of the day from all the pressing on the razor blade, you know. So I wrote a few porno novels. It was, um, I just couldn't keep up. I was—I could write the stories, although you have to think of a way to say "fuck" mm. uh, uh, every five pages. You know, you got to describe a sex scene every five pages. That's part of the the deal. I don't know if I can curse or not, as far as yeah, yeah, sure, okay, great, go ahead, because I have a very dirty mouth. <laughs> yeah, I've been actually restraining myself up to now. Okay, um, so I, I did a couple of those novels, but I couldn't keep up with the pace, you know. And I was living with a couple of friends, crashing with a couple of friends in Brighton Beach again. And one of my friends was heavily into porno, and he would leave all his porno in the bathroom. And I would go into the bathroom and look at the porno and go, man, this stuff is terrible. I could do better than this, you know. And so I decided, just for my friend's amusement, because uh, we would all hang out together at night. We'd, we'd get high. We'd hang out listen to the music. I thought, for my friend's amusement, I'm going to write a funny porno story. And I had this idea about the sodomy squad, like a dragnet or a police thing only for the sodomy squad people who were committing bestiality. I wrote this piece. Used to, and I would read it to my friends and they would howl with laughter. Howl with laughter and I was like, "Wow, this is funny. What the hell? I'll send it into Screw Magazine." You know, and I just cold submitted it to Screw Magazine and they bought it like a 100 bucks. And I was like, "Oh, this is fantastic. They published it and they let me do the drawings and the illustrations and stuff." So that's I started doing that also. I started writing porn humor for Screw Magazine, and I was able to at least think of myself as a writer. Yeah. And my grandmother was the kind of person, she was so proud that uh, at her condo, she'd play cards with the other old women, and she'd bring the Screw Magazine to show that her grandson got published. Ah. <laughs> Fantastic. That was nice. It was yeah. nice that uh, she had been... My grandmother was also one of these mentorish influences on me. She was uh, taught me to read before I went to school, she was a painter, so she, she was always getting me art supplies and encouraging me to paint and encouraging that part of my brain to sort of grow. But you, you ended up in uh, Los Angeles or California. I, I went, it's a very circuitous story, obviously. I mean, I went uh, uh, at some point, I have, I'll have the chronology a little mixed up at this point, but at some point before I went to California, I was still in New York, Kind of down and out. This was, oh yeah, after we came back from Peoria, he and I kind of, Adam and I, sort of had to go scramble to sort of make some money. And uh, he had worked uh, many years, uh, and his father had worked also in the Catskill Mountains, which was kind of a Jewish middle class resort, upstate New York. And he said, you know, we can go upstate and get jobs as bellhops, and we could do comedy on the side there. There's, there's, What's bellhops? A bellhop is a guy who carries your bags okay. when you check into a hotel. Mm. So there's a, a, when, you, when you go to the hotel, right, mm. when you go to the hotel, the guy who takes your bags. And when people would come to the Catskills hotels, they were coming for a week with their entire family, so there was tons of bags. So it was a good tipping job, cash. Mm. We wanted cash. And, uh, and then there were clubs showcases at the hotels where they would allow young stand-ups to go on so that was going on because because the stand-up scene again very inadvertently just timing wise was starting to burgeon at that time improv catch a rising those places were just starting to open at that time so there was a there was an explosion of young comedians when is this, this is the mid mid yes like 76 77 around that time the same time as punk started to really emerge also very exciting cultural time, really. Uh, and I was, I was in the middle of that, which was great, because I absorbed it all. I went to CBGBs, I went to the improv. I was, I was able to kind of do all those things. And they were cheap, also. They were cheap. They were available to people. They were not exclusive. They were not elitist. Um, so we went to the Catskills and worked in the Catskills as bellhops, carrying people's bags for tips. And then on the weekends, we would do stand-up. And I saved my money While I was in the Catskills, which was probably about 300 bucks over the summer, you know, it was great. I mean, uh, uh, there were girls There was, I was making money. It was, everything was free room and board, you know, it was beautiful setting. So it was a great summer to get my shit together. And I, but I had made the decision, I'm going to go to California. Hmm. And so when the summer was over, why I felt like if I was going to make it, if I was going to get into show business, that was I had to be there. Mm. It seemed like everything was there. There was very little going on in New York at that time. Uh, New York television production had, had dropped. Um, most of it had moved to California. And, and, and the truth is, I was kind of like just scattershot. I didn't have like a focused, here's what I'm going to do. And I had no path to take. Uh, for instance, my father, who had been in World War II, as I told you, did stand-up. In the army, sometimes, and one of the other soldiers wrote s- stand-up material for him. That guy became a guy named Stan Burns, who was a very uh, a successful comedy writer in California. worked on Get Smart, uh, worked on Laughing, uh, just did the Steve Allen show. He was a very uh, uh, successful comedy writer, and my father had ha- he had written material for my father in the forties, literally. And my father said to me. When you get out to California, you go see Stan Burns. So that was like my connection. Mm. Somebody that my father had known 30 years before, 35 years before.
1: Before we get into that, yeah. what was your stand-up material?
0: Well, I was, I was young enough that I was still experimenting with my comic persona. My, my theory about stand-up comedy, and if you look at the great stand-up comedians, you feel this, is that they're the best version of themselves on stage. You know, they may be awkward off stage, they may not be funny on stage, but when they're on stage, they own the stage. I was much more self-conscious at that time. I never felt very comfortable. I used to get very nauseous before I went on. I sometimes threw up before I went on stage, just for little showcases and stuff like that. So I did very and also this was a time of Andy Kaufman. And those things started to happen as well. Was Andy Kaufman was was he a superstar? No, he was not a superstar, but he was he was uh, well known in the New York comedy world, okay, yeah. uh, which was a very fertile world. Yeah. But Steve Martin was starting to become very popular, and in his early stand-up was also very conceptual. You know, um, we saw him. In fact, Adam and I went to see him in Florida at a little club, and at the end of the club, at the end of the gig, he walked out to the street with the microphone, hailed a cab got in the cab and drove away, <laughs> you know, and the whole entire audience kind of waved. so he would do conceptual things. He was brilliant. And so that stuff influenced me also. And, and I also wasn't ready to be autobiographical. I just didn't have the courage to do that like a Richard Pryor did or Sam Kinison did eventually. Um, so I did conceptual stuff like I would, uh, I would uh, dress up like a Hasidic rabbi and, uh, and rap to fill in. And then shoot heroin, you know, and things like that, you know, mm-hmm. like a junkie rabbi, or I would do like disco bellhop where I would come out in my bellhop uniform with my, with luggage and dance to a disco song, you know. So I was doing, and then I have jokes, but I, I, I wrote really good jokes, but I didn't feel like I was giving them justice, Yeah, you know. So, um, so when, so, I kind of had to, and, and, but I was much better. When Adam and I worked together on stage, I had much more confidence. And then I could kind of be myself. Alone, I felt much more self-conscious and never felt quite uh, relaxed enough on stage. You did, know?
1: did you ever get to, to experience that?
0: Later on, when I was already doing, or I was already here, like in the 90s, maybe even in the early 2000s, I started doing, uh, there was a lot of like sort of... Uh, alternative comedy spaces in los angeles where you could just come up and do a monologue or just talk and not really have to kind of score or be like a comedian you know and i started doing that and that was actually very successful because okay. by then i was kind of more comfortable with myself and i would just talk to the audience and feel comfortable enough talking and interacting with the audience telling stories like i'm telling you you know okay. so uh, that worked really well however to do that well you have to spend time on it, you know. And I was doing so many other things that I just could not spend the time on it that I would have liked. Because it's very satisfying to get that direct feedback from the audience. So, you got here. Yeah. You I, contacted your... I meet them. I, I call... I come out here. I'm working as a parking valet. I'm parking cars. And I call up... Um, I go into the phone book, and again, these are such old-fashioned terms, even the term phone book. Who yeah, has a phone book anymore? Yeah. It looks up a number. But I got a phone book. I looked up the numbers, and st- sure enough, Stan Burns, the writer, is in the phone book. So I cold call him. I just call him, and he's super nice, super nice guy, and he invites me to breakfast, to have breakfast with him in the valley at Dupar's. And I go see him, and he's super, super supportive. He's looking at my material He's, he likes it he thinks it's funny he, we start to meet on did you have a, like a notebook i had I had all kinds of, I was uh, to this day i'm I usually use recycled paper I have notebooks too like Larry David has a great little notebook that he carries around with him it's very organized I'm not as organized so I will use scraps of paper and just carry them in envelopes I have envelopes thousands and thousands of envelopes with notes in them you know uh, I'll tell you when I met Bob Dylan how how he also um, ha- kept his notes and I always found that fascinating because it was kind of similar. Um, I started meeting with Stan Burns and he was really encouraging to me, you know, and he was writing uh, for a TV show called Dean Martin Celebrity Roasts. Hosted by Dean Martin, they would be these roasts of famous people and there was a lot of jokes needed. So I started ghostwriting jokes for that show, giving him the jokes and then he would submit the jokes. And they were working, and it was good, and he liked it, and he liked me, and we got along really well. And then one day, after a few months of this, he said, you know, i got to tell you something. And I said, yes. He said, I have no idea who your father is. And it's like, really? Because, you know, for my father, it was such an important, you know, meeting uh, that, that he's, he talked about his entire life with me, Stan Burns, Stan Burns, Stan Burns, and... Now I'm sitting across from this guy, he's been incredibly sweet and supportive to me. He's telling me he doesn't remember who my father is. It's 40 years ago. How could he possibly, and of course it made sense. And I never told my father that. No, I never told my father that. But he was incredibly supportive, helped me out, introduced me to agents, and sort of got me, got me started in the idea that I could maybe do something like this. Uh, then I wound up breaking up with a girlfriend, being very depressed. Wanting to give up the whole thing, going back to New York, going back to work at the Catskills, you know, and then getting my shit together again and say, okay, I'm going to go out one more time and try to make it. Because that first time I was doing really, really well. I started to, I was doing the Stan Burns thing, writing those jokes. I used to, the main thing I did at that time, this was like during this golden age of the comedy store. I used to stand in front of the, I would get up from work at the parking valet. Go in my black and whites, my white shirt and my black pants. I go to the comedy store with a page or two of jokes. And when I saw a comedian that I recognized, I'd stop them and go, "Hey, you want to buy a joke?" And they'd look at the jokes, and go, "Okay, this is funny. If this works on stage, I'll give you ten bucks." And Jay Leno and all these people started buying jokes for me at that time. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing, uh, uh, and it worked. And I and I, so I started to get known as somebody who had good jokes. But I had this breakup with my girlfriend. I felt very bad about it. Um, And I wanted to go back and try to make things right. I went back to New York, kind of left all that behind, left my car, left everything, hopped on a bus. You could go cross-country on a bus for $39 in those days. Took a 72-hour bus ride across country nonstop. Went back to New York. Within a week, she and I broke up. And now I'm stuck in New York, broke. Went up to the Catskills, worked in the Catskills, kind of got myself mentally together again, went back to California, and one of those comedians who I'd written for recommended me for a TV show, which wound up being the show Fridays, where I met Larry David. You met uh, Larry, uh, Larry David? Uh, well, I, I started writing for a comedian named Darryl Igas. His wife was the editor of Chic magazine, which is one of Larry Flint's publications. So I wrote material for him, this guy Darrow, who was a stand-up, but I also started writing pieces for Chic Magazine, again, like porno humor. And uh, and then I went back to New York, I went to the Catskills, and when I came back here, I, I didn't know what to do or where to get started or who to contact, and I hadn't seen Darrow in a couple of years, but I had written a couple of pieces that I thought maybe I could sell to his wife's magazine. So I called him up out of the blue after not seeing him for a couple of years. And uh, I I said, hey, you know, I, I how are you doing? We kind of caught up a little bit. And I said, you know, I have a couple of pieces I'd love to submit to your wife's magazine. Her name was Toy. And he said, well, that's cool. But, you know, I just got cast on this TV show. And I told him about you, even though I hadn't talked to you in two years. I said, there's a great writer. You know, and now you're here. If you get your material together, they'll actually look at your material, you know. So I... I gathered all my material and I wrote a bunch of new pieces. I submitted them, and they asked me to come in for an interview. And I didn't have a car; I hitchhiked to the interview, literally. And just kind—I of, I kind of went for broke in the interview for some reason. I said to them, "Look, I don't care if I get the job or not. Just don't hang me up, and you know, just tell me, tell me if I'm hired or not. That's all I ask, you know." And they were like kind of impressed with my my brazen, you know, youth, I suppose hitchhiked back to my apartment that I was sharing with a couple of guys and when I got home the phone was ringing I picked up the phone it was the producer of the show Jack Burns and he said I have good news and bad news and and I I said well what's the good news the good news is I got back to you quickly and I was my heart sunk and they said the bad news is you're hired and so I got hired from I was a bellhop in a parking valet and now suddenly I'm a TV writer you know for the show Fridays And Larry David was one of the cast members of the show. He's about 10 years older than me. And he immediately sort of took me in like like a big brother, like a mentor. And we became close immediately.
1: I'm not sure how to express this, but how did your uh,
0: collaboration work? Well, I mean, in those days, you know, Fridays was a show like Saturday Night Live. There was a lot of writers and a lot of cast members. And everybody was pretty young. Larry was on the older side, actually, and I was on the younger side of the group. But everybody was extremely competitive. Uh, you had to fight each week to get a piece on the air. That was, you know, this your success was based on your ability to get pieces produced for the air, for the, the air show. So
1: there was no helping in the writing room?
0: Well, it, it took a while for people to sort of make their alliances and find people that had similar sensibilities And Larry and I immediately gravitated towards each other. We understood each other's sensibility just inherently because we were from that same place. We we understood our rage, our anger, our resentment, our bitterness, all the things that we could tap into, he and I got from each other right away. So we would write together, not always, I wrote with a lot of different people there and he wrote with a lot of different people there, but he often was a voice for the characters of my sketches because he and I had similar, even speech patterns you know, coming from the same place. So I was able to write for him really, really well. And he was a great writer himself and wrote pieces. And uh, so we just started to kind of bond on that level. You mm-hmm. know, we just we just had a, fr- a natural friendship. But the, the show was canceled? We did the show for three seasons. And uh, it was a, it was eventually canceled. It, it was a weird thing because it was actually very successful for a while. It was beating Saturday Night Live in the ratings. But it wasn't owned by the network the way Saturday Night Live was. So the network had other things they wanted to put on and the Iranian hostage crisis occurred and they decided to put the show Nightline on uh, before us. So we had to follow Nightline after that. And once we started following Nightline, the ratings died and the show eventually got canceled.
1: Uh, at what time is this? It's this in- is uh,
0: 1980 through 82 or 79 through 82 or something like that. Did you have a, a plan for, for what to do after that? It's a good question because, uh, really, I hadn't been a professional writer before then. I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I had lots of ideas, and I could write these sketches, and I loved writing the sketches. I loved the idea that I could think of something on Monday, and on Friday it was on TV. That was really intoxicating. Uh, It was also the early 80s in Los Angeles was a drug-fueled time. Uh, Cocaine, everyone was doing cocaine, and in order to keep up the pace on a show like Friday's we were provided with vials of cocaine. So a lot of people from that show eventually got very, very hung up and and addicted to the Coke and kind of burned out by the end of the show, you know? But I stopped doing it and- uh, While working on the show? at, at At the end, but I was able to stop. I didn't go on to crack or freebasing. A lot of the writers and actors went on and developed kind of severe drug problems that plagued them unfortunately for the rest of their lives to a large degree but for some reason I didn't and I kind of I kind of saw the light and I stopped and uh, but here I am now whatever I am 24 years old out of work I did this kind of job I don't even know how I got the job you know I don't even know what I'm doing and now what do I do you know so I started writing scripts you know and started trying to get movies made But they were very, very weird scripts and I just could not get anybody to even pay attention to them, you know.
1: (laughs) Uh, you say weird I mean were they experimental or... yes
0: I, I, like I wrote a script about a, uh, a gay college professor who invites a bunch of college boys over to his house and they wind up eating him you know I, I, I wrote a, 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 they're all movies that nowadays probably could get made I was into very I uh, still am very dark things like my first sketch on Fridays was Diner of the Living Dead you see all the zombie stuff now and I was sort of tapped into the original zombie stuff Night of the Living Dead and all that thing so I, in fact, I was remembering before I came to see you <clears throat> that a sketch I did that Larry David starred in uh, was called Swedish but not Ingemar Bergman Films in Review. So it was, uh, he hosted the show, and he had uh, uh, like a, a Swedish actor on, played by Tab Hunter, actually, and you know, talking about non-Ingemar Bergman films made in Sweden, which was a funny, a funny sketch. But I was still into those dark things, so all my screenplays were very dark, dark black Super black comedies, you Mm -hmm. know, where it was so black that people were not really getting the joke, you know. Meanwhile, the things I was being offered were terrible. I wasn't being offered. I couldn't believe that after doing this show and doing all this cool stuff that I was being offered all this shitty work and I couldn't get the work on my own. I couldn't seem to generate the work on my own. So I floundered as did Larry David for a number of years after Fridays. And we kind of bonded in a sense from that as well, because we would look out for each other he would if a gig came along, he might recommend me if a gig came along, I might recommend him. We kind of looked out for each other a little bit that way, you know and so but that went on for quite a few years and then I got hooked up with Richard Belzer, who's another kind of classic comedian of that generation, one of the best club comedians around, and he was doing a show for cable now cable had just begun in the mid eighties, so I went from like about eighty two to 85 really without working pretty much. And uh, I wound up meeting Richard Belzer. He was doing this little show for cable and I wound up working on that. And David Steinberg, who was another great comedian, was the host of that. And I used to park David Steinberg's car I used to he used to have he used to have big roaches in his ashtray. And I'd steal the roaches and smoke them because what's he going to complain to the management that his roach was stolen? So, um
1: roaches is It's, that, is a, it's a like cigarette a left belt. over of
0: a joint. Aha, uh-huh, okay. Okay, what's left yeah. of a joint? All right. And so he wasn't going to complain to the management that his pot was stolen, you
1: know.
0: Mm. So, um, and he still
1: uh, came back with this car obviously.
0: I, it always came back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, uh, cause he, he was going to the health club and so he had to, he had to park his car there. You know, he had no choice. Um, but he wound up directing this Richard Belzer show. And I wound up bonding with him also and started writing for him. And I started writing. He was on Tonight Show every six weeks when Johnny Carson was still on. And I would write with him. I'd write his, his material for that. And that became kind of a thing for a while that I started to do. And, and then, Works st- for some reason started to come back again. I started to get more interesting offers and started doing more interesting things and things started to kind of move along again. But it took it took really until Seinfeld for me to sort of get on track It was just like freelancing and taking jobs. I did a Smothers Brothers special. I did, would do whatever I could kind of grab rewrites on scripts and things like that just kind of cobbling together a living, really, and not, not really having a plan, not really knowing where I was going to go. Things like directing, that were just so far removed, that I had no clue how to make that happen at all. So I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just thinking about working. And by 86, I was about to have my first child, and, and things started to get serious. And for some reason, around that time, having that child kind of pushed me To focus, I can't just go from hand to mouth anymore. I've got to start to kind of focus here and start to make something. You know, I clearly have a skill that is marketable. I have to figure out how to market it, you know.
1: That's fantastic that you mentioned that because uh, I heard uh, it's one of the most inspiring things that has happened to me over the last years uh, was when I listened to Louis C.K. being interviewed by. My idol, Mark Maron, sure, and he was telling the same thing that when he got his first child, I think, uh, because he was a rather successful comic, yes, but but he didn't have the uh, focus, yes, Uh, and that was super inspiring to me uh, because when my son was about two, because I thought that when I get uh, when I get to be a father, things are going to work out for me, and they didn't by themselves. Right, right, right. So uh, in order to, to be a better person, a better father, I had to do something that made me happy. Yes,
0: yeah. yes. So well, well I can I, relate. I'll, I'll say something else about that. I mean, I don't know if you can relate to this or if Louis C.K. can relate to this, but I was not, my wife is now working. She was leaving my daughter with me. I had to take care of her all day. I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to, to be working, you know, and that, that also dr- drove me, was like, I don't want to be a house husband. I didn't really want to do that, you know. I wasn't good at it, you know. I, I, I didn't feel comfortable you know, taking care of her. I mean, I loved her and I took care of her the best I could, but really I felt like my creative urges were overwhelming me and I had to do something about that and get out there. So I had my wife eventually quit her job, stayed home, and I started to go out in this new focused way and start to kind of try to make something of this.
1: What did she do?
0: She was actually a very successful advertising copywriter. Yeah, she was doing very, very well, but she really didn't like it. Mm. She wanted to stay home with my daughter. That's what she really wanted to do. And I couldn't really afford to do that at first, but eventually we were able to kind of turn it around and make it work. So I was still stumbling around, but it was starting to be higher level stumbling around. And, uh, but I was also, I needed money. I needed to like, I needed work, I needed something to put me out there. I was like disappearing, essentially. But I was very uncompromising in my vision also. I mean, I, I turned down a lot of stuff that I probably could have done because it just felt wrong to me, you know? And I just trusted my instincts, um, which didn't seem to be working out very well, frankly. Then a friend of mine recommended me in 88 uh, to the Arsenio Hall show that had just started. And they were looking for people to write jokes. So I went to meet Arsenio. We hit it off. He hired me to write jokes for the show. I said, you know, I'd like to write Richard Pryor type of monologues for you. He was like, great. So I started writing those things and he immediately started getting the most vociferous, virulent hate mail I've ever seen in my life, like threatening death, sadistic death threats. It was, it was insane. So he had to stop doing the controversial material. Because it was like we had to have metal screeners at the show. You know, it was like it was just too... It got to be too hot. He was a black man starring in a TV show. In this day and age, even in America, that was not cool. When a white female guest would come out and he would greet her and shake her hand, the the, the switchboard would light up. You know what I mean? So it was very incredibly... In the late 80s even, people were so hung up on that stuff. And I saved... I actually took a lot of that hate mail and saved it. And I have it in my house in a file. I mean... They're unbelievable when you read them, that people could say, that. but this is all pre-social media, this is the way it was expressed. Now it would just be on Twitter, you know. Um, So I did that for about six months, and then he he started to have to... Can I ask you, what kind of
1: material was the audience... uh, What were they about?
0: What what was I writing about? Yeah, exactly. I was was writing about politics, I was writing about... You know, the government, I was writing about being a black person in the society. You know, I was doing bits about like the Garden of Eden. If the, you know, if Adam and Eve were black and just like kind of cool stand up stuff, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was good and it was funny, but you, it was the reaction to it was, uh, there was enough negative reaction that he started to back off and yeah. he started to rely on more traditional jokes. I, I didn't really write that kind of stuff. And I was, it was shot on the lot of Paramount and I, I knew my contract was coming up and I knew I was going to get let go. And I was like desperate. I didn't know what to do. And I remember going out, we, we worked in a series of trailers next to the stage. And I remember walking out of the trailer and just standing in this vast parking lot at Paramount. And there had been a rumor that Jack Nicholson was on the lot editing the two Jakes, which was his follow up to Chinatown. And I'm just standing standing in the parking lot, and suddenly I see a really hot little Mercedes convertible slowly coming towards me. And I see the guy in the car, he's wearing a Lakers cap, and I see it's Jack Nicholson, you know, and I can't believe it. And he slowly cruises by me, and I'm like, I'm looking up, I'm literally looking up at the sky going, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do now, I'm about to get fired, I have a baby, I have no other possibilities. What the fuck am I going to do? And then Jack Nicholson drives by me, he looks at me, I look at him, and for some reason we both just started laughing, you know, and he just said to me, it's funny, isn't it? And drove on, and I thought, for me, that was like a sign. It's a game, you know, it's, it's, it's a, there's a, you have to embrace the game element of it. It's so random, there's so much luck involved, there's so many things that are out of your control, that if you don't embrace that uncertainty then you're going to be in this black and white world that's going to tear you apart, you know? And he kind of, in that weird moment, it it was a symbolic moment that sort of liberated me, you know? So I got fired. (laughs) And uh, I almost immediately got an offer to meet with Keenan Ivory Wayans, who had a show called In Living Color at that time, which was a great show. And I was excited. and, And Jim Carrey was on that show. Uh, it was, it was a fantastic show. And, um, I went to his office for the interview and he made me wait an hour and I was a kind of volatile person, much more so than I am now, although I still retain some of that. Um, not proud of it, but after an hour, I went up to the receptionist and said, you know, fuck this. I'm telling him, tell him I'm, I'm not interested in the job, whatever. Stormed out, you know, stormed out. I went, what did I just do? You know, I don't have a gig. What am I going to do? Went home. Larry David called me. He's, and This is literally after I walked out of this, this thing and not knowing what I was doing. Larry David called me and he said, hey, you know, I just did this pilot, Seinfeld. And, you know, I'd like you to work on it. And I, I was like, great. You know, he said, come on, we'll do 13 episodes. You'll make some money. The show will probably get canceled, but we'll make a little money. It'll be good. So I said, great. Sounds fantastic. You know, he showed me the scripts. The scripts were the first four episodes. They were the funniest things I'd ever read. And I started working on Seinfeld. So all of that led inadvertently to to Seinfeld. Was Seinfeld shot here or in New York? Seinfeld was shot here. Seinfeld was originally developed. Saturday Night Live used to take a week off every month. And they would put specials on instead of Saturday Night Live. And like Richard Lewis, who was a comedian, had done a thing called Diary of a Young Comic, which was very popular. And so the Seinfeld Chronicles, as it was originally called, was going to be like a 90-minute look at how a comedian comes up with his material, and so his life, and then his material, and how they're connected. Um, so it was developed through late night, not through the prime time thing. So it had a kind of a purity to it. And the guy at late night, a guy named Rick Lodwin, who was the executive, he had some sway at that time to get the show into prime time. And, and the show went before. They wouldn't let me work on it originally. The first few shows, I wasn't allowed to work on because Larry really wasn't a showrunner at that point. There were other showrunners that had been imposed upon him. And one of the things, once... And so the pilot was done, a whole year went by after that. And then there was like three episodes, and a whole year went by after that. So it was like a three-year process before it got picked up for 13 episodes. And by then, Larry had become the showrunner and I was able to go work on the show. So so
1: your, the second season was your first? or
0: Well, you know, I don't know how they, how they refer to it anymore. Because there's the pilot. That's a whole different year than, like, the three shows, okay. which is a whole different year than the 13 shows. That was the first kind of... And that was only half a season. But that was the first, I guess, legitimate pickup for the show. And, of course, we were losing. You know, NBC was in bad shape at that time. And they had Cheers. They had a couple... They had Cheers and ER which were massive hits on Thursday, but everything else was kind of dying. And uh, we were losing to like Jake and the fat man in the ratings and all kinds of terrible shit. And, but for some reason they saw something in the show in terms of who it was appealing to that they felt like, and it was probably pretty cheap to produce also, they just let the show run. And eventually, unlike almost anything that happens on network TV today, it developed an organic following you know, kind of a cult following that kind of got to be a big cult, still not doing well in the ratings, but definitely with a presence of some Mm -hmm. sort. And then um, the, the head of the network, Warren Littlefield said, we want to move you to follow Cheers, which was the prime TV spot in all comedy and TV. And Larry David was like, if people didn't watch us on Wednesday, then fuck them. I don't, I don't want to move to Thursday. I don't, want to, I don't want to have a crutch. I don't want to, like, have success because of some other show. If the show succeeds, fine. If it doesn't succeed, the hell with it. And he refused to move the show after Cheers, and everybody had to kind of convince him that it was a good move, the, the show was moved after Cheers, and then it exploded and became a massive hit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that, was the, that was the difference. In terms of it, it was always, from almost the very beginning, it had a very strong... Cult following as much as something could in those days. Again, really no internet to speak of. Really no none of the none of the things we take for granted now to to transmit information. So it really kind of gathered its own steam, kind of uniquely in a lot of ways. But not it couldn't be predicted and it wasn't planned and it was never in a sense our our uh, fatalism about it is what drove the creativity because we felt like the show's going to get canceled what the hell we can't be successful people you know what are we who are we kidding here we're from brooklyn we're not going to be successful people but we got this far so let's do what we want to do and we never wrote sitcoms before and so we just made shit up that we thought was funny you know and that became the show and it it kind of it kind of popped because it was so liberated from the restraints of the traditional sitcom can you grasp
1: the, the gravity of that show still?
0: I do. I, I mean, just um, yesterday, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of like working with Bob Dylan in a lot of ways, because you can't go a week without seeing references to a Bob Dylan song, a Bob Dylan thing of some kind. The same thing with Seinfeld. A week doesn't go by where there's not like, even like in an ad... They'll say not that there's anything wrong with it. Or I saw a thing about pretzels and these pretzels are making me thirsty. So there's even like just references in the culture, yada, yada. Those things are just references in the culture now. It became an inadvertent meme, you know, which really attracted me uh, in terms of what the media can accomplish. You know, it permeated so deeply into the consciousness of people that it actually had an impact, you know, and that, that I found very, very seductive. You know, as a kind of a, a purpose to the work that I was doing, you know, that if I could reach those kind of people and have that kind of impact on them uh, where they're they're loyal and they're hungry and they want more and they will. They'll, they'll, it's like we used to say to Jerry. Jerry was like the comedy Rod Serling because everybody loved him no matter what he did, no matter how bad he was, people loved him. And so he could take them on these dark journeys through comedy but on these dark journeys you know like the twilight zone essentially and they'd be the audience was happy to follow him because it would be a really fun trip you know so it worked it really just kind of worked through a series of circumstances that could not have been predicted beforehand
1: Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks,
1: underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. The impact of of uh, Seinfeld in Sweden, even I mean, it's incomparable.
0: I, I I have been shocked. I mean, I've been to a lot of places since working with Sasha and stuff. I've traveled so extensively, um, and yes, I am shocked. We went. We shot. Uh, we shot um, parts of Bruno in Jordan, and we walked down the street in Jordan, and there would be like uh, street street people selling. DVDs, bootleg DVDs and every single time there would be a, a Curb Your Enthusiasm DVD, there would be a Seinfeld DVD and then a copy of Mein Kampf you know, it was like, they were always but they were always there, like even in Jordan people watched Seinfeld, so I was, I was stunned by that kind of stuff, I just didn't realize the, the, the implications of it Beyond the little thing that we were doing in in uh, studio city
1: but uh, I've understood that you're uh, quite a, a wealthy man
0: did you have a cut on the Seinfeld no, no 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 no, I did not what Seinfeld did for me no there was a, I was like a junior I always I say like I was George Harrison uh, on Seinfeld, you know it's like I had a lot of songs, but I could only get a couple on the air. Uh, it was very much Larry and Jerry's show. It was owned by Castle Rock, which was a you know big company at that time. Jerry had managers, all those people were sharing in the cut. But for me, I went from being a bellhop to being a writer producer of a, of a massive show, um, was making a lot of money and from that wound up making a lot more money as I went on. And that was during the time when, when sitcoms were extremely lucrative and there was a lot of money to be made from that, yeah
1: you you left seinfeld after 3
0: seasons or i, I did 80 shows yeah. i did 80 shows and i'm a, like a very restless person and i'm also a kind of a gambler and i'm also i have tremendously eclectic interests and although i loved working on seinfeld and it was life changing i also was feeling by the 80th episode that i had other things that I wanted to say that I had written an episode, for instance, a kind of notorious episode called The Gun, where Elaine buys a handgun and they wouldn't do the episode. There was there was things it was I was struggling to keep it fresh. For Larry and Jerry it was their life. And they were able to constantly generate stories. But for me, I was kind of like that's why I kinda of related to Kramer, because for me I wasn't really living the Jerry Larry life in a sense, you know and uh so so i found myself struggling uh to 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 write stuff that i felt was fresh i felt like i was it, like the formula had been created for the show we we broke the code uh and larry and i used to take these big hikes up in the in the mountains in studio city and we talk about the stories and we get all the oxygen flowing in our brains and we started to figure out the structure of the show and, and how to make this show the show. And we kind of cracked that code, you know, and once the code was cracked and there was a kind of a formula you could follow, I became less interested creatively. I felt like now somebody else could do it. It could be replicated now, you know. Before, we were, it was like we just had the ingredients. We didn't know what we were going to do with them, and we made it into this thing, and now other people could look at that. And, and so, so I felt like it was time for me to go. I could have stayed forever, You know, but I felt like I wanted to do something else, you know, and I got this offer to do, uh, to be the showrunner. And I also, I couldn't, I hit the glass ceiling there as well. Like, uh, I couldn't be an executive producer on that show because Larry had already struggled with all these other people about that credit, you know, and he was not going to let me sort of have that credit. It just, there was just too many people who had it, you know, the years, if I'd stayed for another few years, maybe that would have happened, but it didn't seem important to me at all. I got an offer to be a showrunner, which is kind of what I was looking for on Mad About You. And I thought, well, this could be good. This is about a marriage. I'm, in a, I'm struggling in my marriage. You know, it's about emotion. There's no emotion in Seinfeld, you know. So I thought, well, this will exercise a different muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, and I went and they did that. So I did that for two years, which was also very exciting and taught me much more about working with actors, about directing about things like that. I mean, I used to stand back at the Seinfeld show with Larry in the rehearsals and go, we should get this close-up here, man, or we should move the camera, or do this pan here. It would be really funny. And so I was always thinking that way, and I'd sit with Larry in editing, and I was, that was on my mind. Even on Fridays, which was fantastic, I was 23 years old, if my sketch was going to be on the air, they basically would put me in charge of the sketch. I got to work with the actors, and so I was learning a lot about this process without even realizing it but by the time i got to mad about you i had even though i had harbored dreams of being a director as well i was kind of giving up on that i was making a lot of money i was working on cool things you know i had some flexibility and some freedom it it just didn't seem like the directing thing was going to be part of the mix and i was kind of just starting to accept that over those next couple of years, and settle in to be a showrunner, to create shows, and to do that sort of thing. When Larry David started to do Curb, and he just came up to me and said, uh, "You should direct one of these episodes," and I was like, "Okay," and that was that. I started to direct. You know, that simple. That's how that happened. Mm. You know, what was uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm? Was it a hit here
1: from the beginning?
0: It was a. It was. It was. Again, almost like Seinfeld, it was an immediate cult hit. I don't think it's ever killed in the ratings on HBO the way The Sopranos has or True Blood or some of their other shows, but it was a, a it was a distinctive show. It was a, it was a what they call a loss leader in a sense for HBO because people wanted to check it out so much that they would have to subscribe to HBO. And and so in that sense, it didn't need to be that successful for it to draw Subscribers. It was such a talked about show amongst the people that were into it that it had an immediate strong following that's remained with it and kind of grown over the years now to the point that, again, around the world, people are constantly asking, me when are you going to do Curb again? When are you going to do Curb again? Again, because of that, this is all, by the way, the, one of the sub-headlines of this conversation is Larry David is a genius. Yeah. He tapped into something in Seinfeld and then even a more unvarnished way on Curb that had not really been explored in that form before, which was the, like, almost... I used to call him the uh, the Edith Wharton of comedy because he was examining social mores and acceptable behavior and pushing that envelope and questioning things and being inappropriate about things without realizing that it was inappropriate. Like, what makes it inappropriate? It, it raised so many interesting uh, philosophical questions mm. and ethical questions that I think people got into it on that level. Like, what would you do in that situation? And Seinfeld had that quality also. And people really, really uh, respond to that. It resonates with people because people relate to those situations and usually will do the safe thing, not usually c- confront, not usually say the thing that shouldn't be said. But the catharsis of seeing somebody do that for you was was unimaginable, you know, how powerful that would be.
1: But And then you sort of... Kept on exploring that with uh, Sasha Baron
0: Cohen. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the thing was that, you know, there's not a lot of ways to express these things. You know, it was amazing to me that Seinfeld became a commercial hit or that Curb was a commercial hit or anything that I've worked on. You know, I think that they're all great and I think the audience is going to love them, but some things work and some things don't for a variety of reasons. There's so many variables that you have no control over. Um, I was a gigantic fan of Sasha's from the Alley G show in England. Um, he had the same agent as I did, and as Larry David did. And uh, HBO used to get the, the big boxing shows. So uh, Larry and I went to the boxing match together. And backstage at the boxing match, our agent, Ari Emanuel, was there with Sasha. And I just kind of got into a conversation with Sasha. And again, we hit it off, you know, we really enjoyed each other's work and I was a big fan of his and we talked about stuff. And we just kind of had a nice conversation, that was it. Then about a year or two, whatever it was later, he came to me uh, about Borat. And you took it? I took it, <laughs> Yeah, I took it. I asked Larry David's blessing actually. And he, because he was shooting Curb at the time. And in fact, I was directing the finale. And, I, and he said, take it, take, definitely, definitely take this, do this. So I I did it. And I had to do the prep for Borat while I was still shooting the final episode of Curb. Dustin Hoffman and Sasha wound up being in that episode. So I got to be with Sasha every day while we were shooting The Curb talking about the movie. So by the time we hit the road, we were kind of ready. Do you have more? uh, I mean, these guys, do you have uh, plans with them for the future now? or No. It's like when I work with Bob Dylan, people would say, are you friends with Bob Dylan? And I go, no, I'm just temporarily amusing him, you know, because he will collaborate with people sporadically over the years, but he'll never collaborate with them again, you know. I mean, Larry and I are like like more than friends at this point. Like I've known him since I'm a child, essentially, and we've been through everything together. We know each other's lies backwards and forwards. We know each other's secrets So we have a closeness that I think is a lifetime kind of closeness, you know, and Sasha and I, because of the things that we did, it's like being in a war with somebody. So I'll always think of Sasha as a war buddy, as a, we're like a band of brothers, you know, I feel very, very close to him on that level. Again, we've had to really face so much adversity together, you know, and look out for each other that I feel a very, a great closeness to him, but... I don't rely on anybody for anything. I don't count on anybody. I never asked Larry David for a job. He offered me the job. I never asked Sasha for a job. You know, it's like I have my own things I want to do. And so much of my career, it could be defined by the things that have been produced. But there's a whole nother secret career of things that didn't work out that also reflect me and that I'm interested in as well. So so really, I get judged very much. And I'm happy to be judged. On stuff that's been produced that's very successful. That's all cool stuff and I like it. But I have so many other things that didn't quite permeate in the same way that I thought were cool too. So yeah. you get you wind up getting sort of judged by, by what's out there, you know. How which many is interesting. Mo- how many
1: movie scripts have you written that haven't been?
0: I've probably written thirty movie scripts I um over the years. Absolutely thirty movie scripts, many, many pilots, you know. Um some have been produced, and some things have gone to series, or, or just about got to being made as a movie, fall apart for one reason or another. Now,
1: perhaps you could like finance a movie yourself, or yeah,
0: possibly. But I, I, I think the problem is not so much the financing of the movie. My fear uh, with the stuff to you know, as I get older, and I say, okay, there's a limited amount of time here to produce stuff. A, it's got to really count to me. I have to really want to do it. I have to be the only one who could do it. You know, I have to feel that strongly about it to commit to it. Uh, that's A. But the second part of that is, let's say I go ahead and make that movie. I need to feel that that movie is going to reach an audience. Mm. And nowadays, so many things wind up going straight to straight to video on demand, or they don't get released, or they don't have a distribution, or they don't have a marketing budget to sort of get the word out there or they're not putting enough theaters or they're not releasing it overseas, whatever that is I've been lucky to pretty much avoid that in the stuff that I've had produced and I want that I Mm -hmm. want to make sure, I want to ensure that if I'm going to spend a year on something that means a lot to me because I I watch lots of great movies that never get released or they're released straight to iTunes or whatever and I'm thinking that, that filmmaker killed himself to make that movie and it's a great movie and nobody's going to see it. Or over the course of many, many years, maybe it'll develop an audience. But that's tough. You know? And I don't want to be in that position of like going to that trouble, making something great, or trying to make something great, and then having it disappear.
1: So if you were uh, stuck, stuck on a deserted island with a MacBook Pro, uh, there was a power outlet by some magic I, reason. I'd I
0: write longhand, by the way. Okay. So all I need is a pad and a paper. Okay. I don't need the MacBook. What
1: would you do with it?
0: I think I would start writing my. I've been asked quite a bit because I, I for whatever again, for whatever reason, I have a lot of crazy stories, and I probably would start as I have many times and stopped. I would probably just start writing those stories—a novel, or a I think it would be a memoir, to, a nonfiction yeah, okay. memoir with a little embellishment that that occasionally got fictional. Because uh, that's sort of what I'm interested in, even filmically these days. It's kind of the the nonfiction blurring of those lines, the diary type of movie. I find those things very fascinating. I just did a uh, an AI campaign where I had to go to Uruguay and Thailand. And seeing all these governmental systems and the governments being overthrown and stuff, and I, and I you know, I'm interested in making not straight-ahead documentaries and not even necessarily like Religious, which was very misunderstood by the documentary community. And I wanted to call it a nonfiction comedy. I thought that would have been a better marketing tool than calling it a documentary and butting up against all the serious, earnest document documentarians. But I would like to make more stuff like that. You know, stuff that's not just on my mind about myself, not solipsistic things but about the world and perceptions of the world that maybe people are not seeing. You know, the movie, The Curb, the Sasha movies, these are about illuminating hypocrisy, about showing people things that they didn't necessarily want to look at, finding comedy in places like the Holocaust or whatever that aren't normally thought to be fodder for humor, you know, but that's a a hard world to be in, you know, and I would like to be able to do it on a very low budget very simple, very lo-fi way talking about those kind of things, both fictional and non-fictional, and blurring that line, you know. So, uh, what are you
1: currently working on, slash with?
0: I am doing a couple of things. One thing I'm doing is I am. We're very close to having all the money together for a movie uh, about the life of Sam Kinison, uh, which Josh Gad, who started the Book of Mormon, he'll play Sam. Um, that, is, that covers everything that I've just been talking about. It'll be low budget. It'll, it'll be very real, documentary feeling, very honest. Um, dealing with religious hypocrisy in this country, dealing with where we were in the 80s, where we are now. You know, it'll be really super funny. It'll be controversial. Uh, I think he, like Sasha, is capable of giving an amazing performance, Academy Award. I mean, to me, Sasha changed the face of acting. Doesn't really get credit for it. You know, how do you judge that performance? A guy who's going in doing eight-hour scenes where he's got to pretend to be a certain person and the people sitting right next to him have to believe it. Like, who doesn't... If, if that doesn't deserve an Oscar, I don't know what does, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, but Josh also is ready to immerse himself in Sam. Uh, before that, I'm doing a very interesting TV project based on the Swedish show, uh, which was called Uruk and Hertz, Hertzberg Show or something. I don't know... Those uh, guys' names, even, I can never pronounce them. Ulveson och Hörngren. Yes, that's right, thank you. Um, so we're doing an American version of that. Called The Comedians. Called The Comedians, with Billy Crystal and Josh Gad playing the younger comedian. Mm. And what I loved about the Swedish show, again, in the kind of way I love Curb or Larry Sanders or those sort of shows, is it's essentially not a funny show. It's an, it's an unfunny show about comedy. And I thought that's an interesting challenge, you know. And if, and if Billy... We have this image of Billy Crystal. He's like America's most beloved comedian. If we could show a different side and illuminate another side of him, a TV Billy, the way we have a TV Larry, then I thought it would be revelatory for the audience to see him that way. And then that becomes funny. It becomes really funny in a a new way, hopefully a fresh way. Did you ever work with women? Um, I have worked with women over the years. Um, You mean professionally, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I worked very closely with Helen Hunt when we did Mad About You, she won an Emmy the two years that I worked with her and won an Oscar one of those years as well. So I had a pretty close relationship with her uh, creatively, which was good because she was the first real actress or actor that I really worked with. Paul Reiser, also great, but Paul Rise is the kind of guy like Jerry where he could be sitting and bullshitting with you beforehand and you go, okay, you got to go on, and he could just walk on and do it. Helen was more of an actor. She had to prepare she had to get into it, you know, and I learned about that process a lot from her. I also worked with another great woman who I admire tremendously and respect, Sarah Silverman. We wrote two or three pilots together that we could not get off the ground, essentially. Um, but she's another person whose voice, like Jerry, like Louis C.K., she has a very, very distinctive voice. Now, we live in a somewhat sexist society, and so that voice is not as easy to disseminate to the masses, but she's got a very distinctive voice, really smart, really funny, really cutting edge, um, really delivers on stage, uh, sensibility-wise, just kind of I- I- unique. And uh, I loved working with her. She's a great, great person also. Is it a
1: coincidence that you very much been working with other Jewish people?
0: Um... That's an interesting question. Uh it's a co I would say yes. It's a coincidence. Um if Sasha wasn't Jewish. I mean, Sasha being Jewish is an important part of who he is. Same thing with Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. Uh their levels of of attachment to the actual religion is different. But culturally, we are all from the same sort of background. Eastern European parents or Eastern European ancestry, you know, and uh first- or second-generation parents uh, from um, immigrant uh, parents. Um, So there's a shared sensibility there um, to some degree. And because of that shared sensibility, that does permeate comedy to some degree, or at least the comedy that I've been involved in. But, I mean, I've, I've definitely not sought out that sort of thing. I know about it. I know how to make fun of it. I know how to take advantage of it. So it's kind of in my wheelhouse, as they say. But uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I've collaborated with with people who aren't Jewish. I just haven't had maybe the level of success mm-hmm. with those things. So no, I'm very curious about about all those things. I, I love the. I love meeting uh, uh, comedians or thinkers who are not from that same background as me. Somebody yeah. who could show me something different, you know. So no, I don't gravitate to that on purpose. I guess that's just something that's happened. I mean, even Bob Dylan is Jewish. So. Uh, It's a weird little, you know, it's a place that Jews were able to go to to make a living back in the early days. And so in the same way that the child of a football coach or a football quarterback is around football from the time he's a child, so he could be a good coach because he knows the game really, really well. So it's not really nepotism when he gets hired. In the same way, there's this like sort of Jewish enclave of people, and they're around that comedy from the time they're a child, and so they are maybe more naturally inclined to be able to do that kind of
1: comedy. I looked it up. Uh, I think uh, we have like 20,000 Jews in Sweden or so, so it's a really, really small part of the population. Right. Uh, but would you, would you say that there is a Jewish humor?
0: Well, there's definitely Jewish humor. As I was talking about, I mean, Mel Brooks, there's a great show, if you could see it on YouTube, I think it's on YouTube, called uh, How to Be a Jewish Son. And it was an interview from the 60s. I remember seeing it as a kid. Uh, and Mel Brooks was on it. And, a lot, and Mel Brooks is also from this neighborhood, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned him before. I, I think you did. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, he talked about this anger and fear. You know, I think that, that Jewish humor... To a large degree, and and this could be true of black humor also, I mean, it's from a different sensibility and a different history, but the history of oppression and suffering somehow was turned into, and, and, and maybe take the history and the suffering and then combine it with a kind of respect for text. You know, uh, because the because of the Talmud and that whole dialectic about what is this religion and examining it and analyzing it, that co- combined with the anger, the fear, and the suffering, maybe created a sort of sensibility that we all still draw on to some degree, mm. and that's still relevant, even if it's not about Jewishness anymore it's about underdogness or suppression or suffering or hypocrisy, those sort of things that maybe Jews were, were you know, taught uh, over the years historically to be a little more sensitive to. And so maybe they could tap those things a little bit more easily. You know, that's, again, theory. But
1: uh, do you believe in God?
0: I do not believe in any sort of religious uh, organized entity. Um, I'm happy to say I have no clue what's out there, how it works, what kind of organizing principle it is. But I'm convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the, uh, the, the uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic God, that entity, does not exist. Okay. Yeah. I heard a rumor that you had a p- p- pajama period. I did have a pajama period. I... After Seinfeld, when I went to work, I'm mad about you, I was putting in like 18 hour days and I was working six, seven days a week and I started, I don't know why, I started wearing pajamas to work and because I was there and I crashed there and I just, and it was also an easier way for me to get dressed in the morning. It's like I didn't have to figure out this shirt's going to go with this, you know, I could just put on the pajamas. top was the same as the bottom. It was very, very simple. So it was kind of like a uniform, in a sense, for me, a comfortable uniform, you know. And so I started wearing pajamas, and for the next few years, I pretty much wore pajamas full-time, you know. Um, In fact, Mad About You had a pajama day, where everybody wore pajamas to sort of celebrate that. Then when I got out of Mad About You, and I was kind of uh, back in the real world... I started, people started to think I was just insane because I was wearing pajamas. So I kind of started to pull back a little bit on it. That was a phase. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was a fun phase.
1: Yeah. But you seem also to have had, uh, I don't know if it's over,
0: but the Crocs period. I had a short Crocs period too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, again, I'm always looking for comfort, you know, and, uh, Uh, And the Crocs to me were the most comfortable shoes. I couldn't, you know, I could walk in them for long periods of time. I could stand up in them for long periods of time, which I had to do.
1: And they were super Uh,
0: light. Super light, exactly. And uh, so, yeah, I I relied on Crocs for a long time. But again, I've kind of phased out of the Croc phase a little bit. Yeah, what are
1: you wearing now? I'm
0: wearing Converse, which has been my go to shoe since I'm a kid, pretty much.
1: Yeah, okay. But
0: I'm trying to even expand on that. You know, I'm trying to sort of embrace um, my reality a little bit, you know? So I don't want to seem like I'm trying to be a kid or I'm trying to dress. So I'm trying to, you know, kind of accept who I am and let myself reflect that, you know, rather than try uh, anything. So, so if the Crocs worked for a while, that was cool, but I'm not, I'm just not wearing them anymore. Do you do drugs? I don't do drugs, but I have done all drugs. Yeah. You know, I've done every drug. Uh, and, and, uh, one of the titles for one of my imaginary memoirs is I miss everything. Because really, I look back at all those days as being fun. I mean, I feel like acid, particularly, was one of the most important things I ever did in terms of opening up my mind and my sensibility and how reality works and what an illusion we live under to some degree, you know. Um, So uh, drugs have been a very positive experience for me, which is tough when I talk to my kids about it. But... um, no, I don't. Like I said, I've been, I was sober for 20 years. I smoked pot, stopped again, you know, it's like I might occasionally smoke a joint, I might occasionally have a drink. But that's the extent of it at this point, you know, mm. it's like I need to sort of harness my energy in a positive way and not get distracted by these other things.
1: But you said earlier that you uh, tried to fight uh, your genes, but you look really fit. I'm pretty.
0: I'm pretty fit. I do. I do work out. I do exercise. I have a dog. I live in the mountains. We take pretty extensive hikes. I have a gym in my garage. I work out, and I have worked out sporadically, intensely over the years, trying to stay in shape. But yes, that's for directing, which is especially directing things like Borat and Bruno, which are incredibly physically arduous jobs. I had to be in good enough shape to be able to run, you know, to be able to stay out and continue shooting for eight hours straight with no breaks, you know, that kind of arduous sort of, uh, uh, those kind of tasks you have to be physically fit to do. So I've tried to keep myself physically fit, absolutely, yeah. very important. Yeah, you said earlier that
1: you would uh, tell me how, uh, about Bob Dylan's uh, how, how he works with uh, right, yeah. right, right, right.
0: When, when I met Bob Dylan. He originally wanted to do a TV pilot, believe it or not. He had been, he's on his tour bus all the time, touring endlessly, and he watches movies on the tour bus, and he was into a Jerry Lewis period, and he's like, I want to do a, a funny pilot, you know, he wants to do a TV show. So he's, he came out with a box, and he opened the box up and dumped out on the table all these little, tiny little scraps of paper from all over the world, like hotel rooms all over the world, um, and he's like, I don't know what to do with all this. You know, And I started picking up a little piece of paper, and sometimes there'd be a person's name on it that he made up, or a line, just like a line of poetry or a non sequitur of some kind. And he's like, I don't know what to do with this. And I was like, well, you know, this could be the name of a character. This could be a line that he says. He's like, you could do that? And I was like, yeah, because that's the way he writes songs, obviously, too. He kind of that cut up William Burroughs' method, basically. He's very stream of consciousness, Mm -hmm. and he puts together words and lines in an almost unconscious, instinctive, intuitive way, and, and they make sense, ultimately, on some kind of poetic level. So that's what we started doing. We started to write the script. He called you. He called me, yes. He was looking for someone. He was His manager called me and said, would you be interested in meeting Bob Dylan? I was like, yeah, of course. And I figured it would be one meeting, And I can go to my friends and go, hey, I hung out with Bob Dylan for an hour. That's what I thought was going to happen. Instead, we started working right then and started working for another year. We wrote together in a little cubicle in the back of his boxing gym for like a year. So uh, it wound up being an amazing, amazing experience. But it started with those little notes, filling in the blanks, telling a story of some kind with it uh, in a Bob Dylan-esque way, and finally coming up with something for a TV pilot for HBO. And we went to HBO. They were excited as hell that we were coming in with a TV show. Um, I, I was wearing my pajamas. Uh, Bob, we said, Bob, if you come to the meeting, we'll sell the show because they will—they want the balls to say no to you. So he said, okay. And he came to the meeting. He was in a big black, like 10-gallon cowboy hat, a black floor-length duster, and I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> and we're walking down the hallway at HBO, and we go in and we sit down, and immediately... Me, Bob's manager, and my manager at the time, Gavin Pallone, we're sitting with Chris Albrecht, who's the president of HBO. But Bob immediately walks, doesn't sit down, he walks over to, the, to the, the, uh, the windows that overlook the city and just turns his back to us and doesn't acknowledge us through the entire meeting. So every now and then I'm talking and I'm pitching and I'm going, isn't that right, Bob? And he's like, yeah, like that. That was it. Um, so despite all that, we sold the show. When we got out of the meeting, Bob said, "I don't feel comfortable with it anymore." It's like, really? We just sold the show. He's like, "I don't want to do it anymore." So everybody was ready to bail, but I was like, "Listen, let's keep working. Then let's keep working on it." You know? And my manager Gavin said, "You should, you should, you should get out of there now. Get out now. You're going to be stuck with him forever." And I was like, "This is one train. I'm taking this straight to the last stop. I don't know where it's going to lead." but I have a chance to be working with Bob Dylan. I'm going to work with him as long as it takes. This could be the rest of my life as far as I'm concerned. It's that fascinating. So we continued working and eventually evolved into this movie script and that we wound up making.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And uh, how about the result?
0: Are you happy with it? Well, with all my movies, I did not have final cut over any movie that I've made. And I think that has in some ways... For me, hurt everything that I've directed in the movies, because mm. um, I feel decisions and choices were made that I didn't agree with. Uh, but you have to live with that to some degree. Now, the Bob Dylan movie, for instance, was my cut was three and a half hours. It was a much more epic, much more pageant, much more humor, more music. you know it was a much bigger canvas. It was much more epic canvas, three and a half hours. And of course, when I handed him my cutter, but he looked at me like, you're out of your fucking mind. We're not releasing a three and a half hour movie. So they showed me in my contract, which I never knew before, that it was it had to be 110 minutes. So I had to go from three and a half hours to 110 minutes. So I think it's a great 110 minute version of the movie. I would love people to see. And I've talked about with Bob's manager, talked about putting out some kind of director's cut at some point with the three and a half hours. In yeah. Because it. it plays. It's really good. Yeah. Borat, the first, the assembly of Borat was six hours long. The movie's 86 minutes. So you can imagine what's been lost along the way. Brilliant, brilliant, great, great stuff that just didn't fit in for one reason or another. Or that we had disagreements about what should go in. With Bruno, it was the first movie that I really felt like we had, uh, there were disagreements about what the movie was supposed to be. You know, we had great material again, but making those choices was hard. And the same thing happened with The Dictator. You know, it was like trying... We were trying to... uh, There was too many cooks, I felt, at that point, with legitimate and valid points of view, but different points of view, that could not be reconciled. And the end result of that, I think, shows to some degree in the movie. Um, The original cuts of that, I thought, were much stronger. But that's my feeling, personally. um, And other people might feel differently.
1: We were mentioning uh, that you are rich earlier. What do you spend money on?
0: Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that I'm rich. I would say that uh, I've made a lot of money. I probably have more money than 99% of the people in the world. That's true. But I also live in Los Angeles, and I happen to have friends who make me look like a pauper in relation to them. So I'm very cognizant of all that disparity and that inequality and I'm basically an extremely modest person. You know, I live in a very modest house. I drive a normal car. You know, um, I'm not uh, indulgent about, I don't have hobbies. You know what I mean? I'm not indulgent about anything. I don't really spend money on anything, actually. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't buy expensive clothes or any of the kind of things that maybe material wealth might bring you. You know, I have four kids who have gone to private colleges and private schools that's the sort of money that that money got spent on are you a feminist absolutely yeah absolutely a feminist absolutely yes yes uh, you just reminded remind me about my son my son is uh describes himself as a vegan marxist he has this uh he, he has this email uh, correspondence with noam chomsky and uh he runs the feminist club at his high school which i'm actually kind of proud of um so, yeah, yes, absolutely. Well, again, I grew up at the time when those ideas were just starting to burgeon. You know, women's lib and, you know, the burning your bras and stuff, which were all disparaged and made jokes about, but clearly, ultimately, had a gigantic uh, meme like change in the culture, you know. And, I, and yeah, I, I'm against any inequality uh, towards anybody. I read a lot of Peter Singer, who's an ethical philosopher. About animal rights and things, even those sort of things. Uh, I, I'm I'm a believer in everyone's every living thing's rights. Essentially, yeah. You know, uh, so so women. Uh, I watched you know thinking about 12 Years as a Slave. You know, we 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 have a, a kind of very checkered history in this country uh, in terms of human rights. And uh, and yes, to me that's that's a crucially important thing: uh, is people's freedom, people's equality. Absolutely. Are you a vegetarian? I was a vegetarian for a long time. I'm not anymore. But I would like to... I, I, my Philosophically, I'm a vegetarian. In practice, I'm not right now. So that's my hypocrisy. Would you like to recommend anything? Something? Anything? I can recommend a whole bunch of things. Yeah? Um, Please go ahead. There's a great movie. This is one of these movies I'm talking about that I thought was one of the best movies of last year that nobody saw It's called John Dies at the End. Uh, It's based on a graphic novel. It's directed by this guy, Don Coscarelli, who directed Bubba Hotep. He's a very cult director. It's about uh, quantum physics, and it's a black comedy. Uh, Fascinating, visual, provocative. That was one of my favorite movies of last year. I highly, highly recommend that. Um, uh, this, This show, The Returned, which is eight episodes. There'll be a second season. I thought, again, amazing, uh, cool, eerie, tense, suspenseful, but completely relatable at the same time and not sensationalistic and not violent, really, uh, which is a, a trick with that kind of form. Um, the music for that show is done by a group called Mogwai, Fantastic band that I've kind of been into for many, many years. They do a sort of a... Instrumental kind of almost operatic sort of rock music, uh, but they did the music for that show, and it's very it's, it's it really contributes to the show also. Brilliant, brilliant music. So that's just a couple of things off the top of my head yeah. that I've been telling people about lately that I really liked a lot that they wouldn't never they would never be exposed to otherwise possibly. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh,
1: and who do you think I should interview
0: next here? I think Sarah Silverman would be a great person to interview. Um, Whether someone like Larry or, you know, Billy Crystal will sit down. That's a, a, maybe a tougher call, but someone like Sarah, I think, uh, or if you could talk to Louis CK, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Sasha, if you could get to him, I don't think you would get to Sasha though, either. Particularly. He doesn't like talking about his process. Uh, he 's very closed about that kind of stuff, uh, although he 's an incredibly witty, smart, fun interview, so but he might balk at some of that stuff you know um, yeah there 's a lot there 's a lot of cool people doing stuff now, and yeah. uh, i 'm sure uh, you know if, if I could help i 'd love to
1: That would be wonderful. Thanks for your time.
0: my pleasure, thank you.
1: Larry Charles, such a fantastic, uh, nice guy. I uh, love him to death from this moment on. And uh, I look forward to seeing The Comedians. I think it premieres somewhere this spring, perhaps March or April 2015 on FX here in the U.S. That's it for today's show. Please follow Varvet International in social media. That's VarvetPod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can send us an email at uh, pod at, at I appreciate when you do that. And we also have a Facebook page. Bye-bye and take care. Talk to you soon. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?